Welcome to Light for the Journey, a podcast of Russell Memorial Methodist Church. In today's message, Pastor David Cartwright leads us on a Lenten journey of Jesus in the wild. The word if is only two letters, but highly powerful. If can be used to build us or break us. It depends on who is speaking. The tempter uses if to cause us to respond wrongly to God. By God's grace, we can turn if into kingdom possibilities by learning the schemes of the tempter and reframing his challenges. I invite you to turn in your scripture to the gospel according to Luke. We've been camping out here for the last couple of weeks and will continue to do so until Easter arrives. By the time Easter arrives, your Bible will just fall right open to Luke chapter 4. Pray with me. Holy Spirit, be present in our midst so that the things that would distract us from hearing your voice would be removed from our midst, capture our hearts, our minds, open our ears that we may hear you, our eyes that we may see you, our hearts that we may know you. Lead me to speak words of your truth, to speak them in simplicity, with clarity, and full of grace. And for every good thing that we receive now, we give praise and glory only to you. In the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. If, 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 if is a huge word, is it not, for only two letters long? We use it so frequently, and in so many ways, um, we use it to make provisions for the future. Perhaps in a business meeting you might hear things like, uh, now if we don't put some measures in place, we uh, may be making ourselves liable for some consequences down the road, if. Or just casual provisions, you know. Well, if more people show up, we'll just take a second car and we'll all get there, right? If. Uh, Sometimes it's innocuous. But the word if is a powerful tool in the hand, in the arsenal of our spiritual enemy. And he used it against Jesus when Jesus went into the wilderness to be tested before he ever began what we call an earthly ministry. And so what we want to do today is look at those examples of if and uh, plant some seeds in our minds about how the enemy comes against us as well. There's no way that we could do an exhaustive uh, unpacking of all of the ifs that come our way. I have to trust that to your prayerful discernment in the days to come. But I promise you that if comes to all of us, and there are times when the enemy would use it to undo us. Beginning at chapter 4, verse 1, we'll just get a running start at this. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan 
where I would remind you the voice of God from heaven said at his baptism, You are my son, the beloved, with whom I am well pleased. He was led around by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil, and he ate nothing during those days. And when they had ended, he became hungry. Verse 3, And the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell tell this stone to become bread. One of the ways that if can be used is to move from a truth to an incorrect application of the truth. Isn't it interesting how you can go from something that's true to being off base? And, and we do that. One of the variances of that is when you start with truth and then get to a conclusion that makes you go back and question the truth that you started with. Case in point, a good example would be Genesis chapter 3. Have you all heard of these folks in the Bible called Adam and Eve? Um, If you're not familiar with them, just start at the beginning. You'll come across them pretty quickly. Genesis chapter 3 tells us that Adam and Eve were uh, living in, in paradise in the perfect relationship with God. God had made provision for them to eat of every tree in the garden except for the one known as the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God said, don't eat of that tree because in the day that you do, surely you will die. The serpent shows up and says, now is that what God really said? And Eve was pretty clear about it. Eve is, Eve's in this conversation with the tempter, with, with the serpent. And uh, said, yep, he, he says, uh, you know, God said we could eat of every tree except that one in the center of the garden. We can't eat of it, can't even touch it. She went so far as to say that, but that's another story. And Satan plants the seed of doubt. You know, again, Eve was clear about it. Like, that's what he said. Have you ever done that to somebody? You ask them a question, they give you the right answer... And then you go, now, are you sure about that? And they go, oh, my, I don't know. Maybe I was wrong. And they start second-guessing themselves. It's exactly what happened to Eve. She was sure about it until the, the serpent said, now, really? Is that what he said? And you see, it was that little seed of doubt. And this is how he did it. The, now, the, now, the word if isn't in there, but really it's, he, he, what he was doing was posing an if question. And it would have sounded something like this, the serpent saying to Eve, Now, if if you are really like the pinnacle of God's creation, and God has this perfect setup for you, doesn't it sound logical that he would let you eat of any tree? Right? I mean, that's logic, that's human reasoning. And Eve started going, well, I don't know. Maybe I got that truth wrong. Well, if you don't know the rest, just go read it. But, you know, the end of the story is that's why we're all in this predicament we are with the human condition. Because we chose to rebel against God. 
she started with truth, but the seed of doubt got her to go back from the truth and doubt the truth that she had to begin with. And God still has to work us through things like that because when it comes to the things of our faith, oftentimes we doubt what God has given to us to be sure of. For instance, you could start with the reality, the truth that God enjoys blessing his children. He he pours his riches into the lives of his children. But then you could go, well, if, if God likes to bless his children and to fill our lives with good things, then why am I, you know, why am I living paycheck to paycheck and struggling? Why am I, you know, I've tried to be faithful, I'm worshiping, I'm reading my Bible, I'm, I'm trying to, you know, walk with Jesus, but, you know, why are things still tight? You know, maybe I got this wrong about... Uh, Maybe I'm not a child of God to begin with if I'm really having a hard time here. You see, sometimes we can get from the truth to a bad conclusion about the truth. And we do it all the time. Or we can simply take the truth and make a bad application out of it. I would give you Romans, well, I'd give you the whole book of Romans... Uh, the book of Romans really is just a sequence of if-then statements. Paul builds his argument about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, look particularly, this will be part of your homework, go home and read, begin, go, go to Romans chapter 6, verse 1. You can write this in your bulletin because I'm giving you homework. See, start there, go back to the last couple of verses of chapter 5, and you'll find there that Paul says, that where sin increased, grace increased even more. Get it? That's why I'm on my tippy toes, because I'm going, you know, increased. Where sin increased, grace abounded even more. That's pretty cool, right? The greater sin is, the greater grace is. Now, human reasoning kicks in, and that's why Paul begins chapter 6 by asking the question, what shall we say then? Should we just sin more? so that God's grace can be even greater? See? Truth to a bad application of truth. That's the way the human brain works, and Paul knows it. Paul's answer to that, as my teenager would put it, uh, no. May it never be, no. Okay, Satan comes to Jesus and says, well, if you're the son of God, which he is, okay, truth to bad application, whatever form that is, it's one of the things that if will do to us. Second temptation goes like this, verses 5 and 6. Satan led him up and showed Jesus all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, I will give you all this domain and its glory, for it has been handed over to me, and I give it to whomever I wish. This is kind of like the deal that was better before you made it than after you made it. It exaggerates the benefits and conceals the costs. 
Have you ever had a deal like that? Like when it was being offered to you, you went, man, this sounds awful good. I mean, you're looking at the fine print, you're going, I, don't, I really don't see any downside to this, you know? It looks pretty straightforward, everything, and, and man, what I'm going to get, woo, joy unspeakable. And then you get it. And what you find out is the benefit wasn't as great as what you thought it was going to be. And the cost was greater than what you expected. No one's had, ever had a deal like that, right? See, this is what Satan is handing over to Jesus. And all this, look at it. It's great. You will have hmm, all the joys, all the benefits, all of the, all of the satisfaction that this world has to offer. And all you have to do is just exchange that priority of God that you seem to have and let me take his place. That's it. Makes it sound pretty sweet. But Jesus knows that the benefit won't be as great as what it looks like and that the cost will be much more than he had ever want to pay. This is an illustration. This, this passage, this temptation is one that I think we have a hard time resonating with. And the reason I think we may have a hard time resonating with it is because the imagery seems unreal to us. Okay? We read this temptation. Satan's got Jesus and he's showing him in an instant all of the kingdoms of the world. And we picture Satan and we've got him in a red suit, red face, pointy ears, pitchfork, with that sinister laugh going, ha, 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 ha. If you'll just kneel down and worship me. Right? And if that's the way Satan came to us, we would flee. It, it would be a no-brainer. We would, we would scoot as fast as we could. Bad deal. I'm out of here. Right? But that's not the way it happens. If Satan couldn't make things attractive, he would never be able to bait us. So it's not like our minds would picture. It's subtle. And for the most part, for us, we don't cash all of our God chips all at once. Now, I can't say never, because some people might, but usually that's not the way it happens. Usually it's one at a time, one at a time, one at a time. It is a slow, incremental marginalization of God on the throne of our hearts. It's kind of like parents who, if you've ever had kids get in bed with you, you probably understand what this is like. Because they get in bed with you and they want to sleep with you, and at the beginning, it kind of seems all right, like everybody has their place and there's room for everybody. And then somehow during the night, you keep getting moved over. Like a little bit at a time, 
and a little bit at a time until eventually you're like on your side trying not to fall off the bed. And you think, how did this happen? A little bit at a time. And see, that's, that's how we end up exchanging the lordship of Christ in our life for whatever else seems attractive to us. The Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And I would say that Scripture upholds something that correlates with it. And just, just as the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared, neither are the pleasantries of this life worthy to be compared to the glory to be revealed in us. This world looks peachy keen in our eyes. It has so much to offer. Shiny bells and whistles, everything to attract our hearts and our attentions. There is nothing this world has to offer that can hold a candle to the glory that God has in store for his children. Nothing. When we become enamored and attracted and willing to exchange, just, just let all, all Satan is trying to do is just say, just get God to scoot over just a little bit. Just a little bit. And once he gets God to scoot over a little, a little bit, then he gets God to scoot over a little bit more until we find ourselves that God is so marginalized that he has little, if any, impact in our lives. One little bit at a time, we exchange the glory of God for the glory of the world. And we are fools if we make the deal. Third temptation kind of goes like this, verses 9 through 11. It says that Satan led Jesus up to Jerusalem, had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that they, you will not strike your foot against a stone. This is a temptation that sets a person's faith against the will of God. Hang on with a second for with me for a second. I'll tell you what I mean by that. This is Satan's way of saying, okay, if I can't get you to deny the truth, I mean, if you're going to stick with the truth, maybe I can get you to go against God's design. You can keep the truth, but if I can get you to act outside of God's will, then he can still undermine God's purposes. I have an old friend. I remember one of the little tidbits of wisdom that he left with me. He always said, you know, you've heard people say, do the right thing. You have heard people say that, right? Okay. 
He liked to say, do the right thing the right way. It's, yeah, okay. Jesus came not only to do the right thing, God's will, but to do it the way God wanted him to do it. Let me give you a scripture example. Luke chapter 9, from verses 52 to 55. You can read there, Jesus is going with his disciples out from one town to another. And they come into a town of the Samaritans. The disciples have gone ahead to make preparations for Jesus' coming. And the scripture tells us that the town wouldn't receive Jesus. He was traveling with his face set toward Jerusalem. And so the, the, the town, for whatever reason, wouldn't uh, embrace Jesus and his presence. And James and John go to Jesus and they say, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to consume them? And Jesus said, he said, you do not know what spirit you are of. Now think about this for a moment. James and John wanted the same thing Jesus did for the town to receive him. They were trying to get at the same thing. But James and John didn't understand that there was a way that God had for doing things. And they were about to step out of it. There are times that we want to do the right thing, in other words, the God thing. But Satan may get us to go about it the wrong way. And it is equally destructive to the purpose of God. If you don't think this was meaningful for Jesus, let me invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 27. I want to read a few verses there with you. In Matthew chapter 27. And by the way, this, this came back to a head for Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. On the night before he was to be arrested, the day before he went to his death, he prayed in the garden by himself. And his struggle was centered around these words, God, if this cup could pass from me, but yet not your will but mine. He was asking is this the way we have to do it? Jesus is on the cross. Uh, let, me, let me get reading at verse 38. Matthew chapter 27, beginning at verse 38. At that time there were two robbers who were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads and saying... You who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. Pay attention to the wording here. If you are the Son of God, come down from that cross. Now I want you to picture, if you would, you in Jesus' place right then. You have walked in grace, you have come this far, you have taken abuse. And people have not embraced the reality of who you are. 
and you're hanging there, and someone says, if you're the Son of God, just come on down from there. You, want, you know what my reaction probably would be? Reach down. All right. We'll show you. You just hang on a second. I'll be right down. Then we'll see, right? But that would not have accomplished what God was doing. You can read a little bit further. Verse 41, in the same way the chief priests also along with the scribes and elders were mocking him and saying, he saved others, he cannot save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him now come down from the cross and we will believe him. Oh, how tempting that must have been. To want to do the purposes of God but not do it God's way. Those are very subtle things. And unfortunately, we, we fall prey to them. We're convinced that we're doing the right thing, but we end up going about it the wrong way. And we don't accomplish the best for God. Those if statements, oh, they, they're, they're so many. And they're so powerful when they work against us. Can you think of some common if statements? You know, if I'm still dealing with this illness and, and not getting any better, does that mean there's something lacking in my faith? Or, well, if I just live as a good person... There's no reason I should worry about heaven, right? Or if I'm going through a time of real hardship, does that mean that I've stepped out of the will of God? There are just all kinds of if statements. And they can come at us from any angle. And we really need to be careful about what those statements do to us. Because they have the capacity to put doubt in our minds. They have the capacity to direct us from, from a truth to a bad conclusion of it or a bad application of it. There are so many things that our spiritual enemy can use just through if. And he'll do it. But you know what? God has some if statements of his own. And I wouldn't want us to get away without being reminded of them. Now again, I'm not going to give you an exhaustive list. But I'll share a few of them. And you know, when God has if statements, you can bank on them being true. Like the Apostle John writes in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. If we confess our sins, then he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. The Apostle Paul writes, Romans 10, verse 9, If you confess Jesus with your mouth and believe in your heart that God raised him from, your dead, from the dead, you will be saved. 
were from the mouth of Jesus himself. John chapter 10, verse 9. I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. share something with you personally you know this comes from our devotional readings through this time of Lent I know what happens when I'm unfaithful I know what happens when I don't have enough trust to take God at his word So I wonder what would happen if. I wonder what would happen if I really sunk into the truth that every time a temptation comes to me, that God has provided a way out for me so that I don't have to fall prey to it. I wonder what would be different if I really believed that when I'm feeling at my wit's end and feeling weak and worn down in life. If I took God at his word that those who wait upon the Lord will renew their strength, they'll mount up with wings like eagles, run and not be weary, and walk and not be faint. I wonder what would be different if I took God at his word when I'm feeling like I'm in a place of scarcity in life. If I believed what the Apostle Paul wrote in Philippians 4, that my God will supply all of your needs according to his riches in Christ Jesus. I wonder what would be different if I took Jesus at his word when he told his disciples, you know, when people want, they want to bring you in front of them and, and make you give testimony about me, don't be anxious about what you're going to say because the Holy Spirit is going to tell you in that moment what you're supposed to speak. What would be different if I believed God and took him at his word on those things? Let me invite you to turn to one other passage. I'm going to leave you here. We shouldn't get away today without looking in 2 Chronicles chapter 7. Now, I didn't say Corinthians. You've got to go back to the Old Testament for this one. Second Chronicles chapter 7. If you can find Kings, you can find Chronicles. Just look a little bit further back. This may be, this may be the most powerful if today. I want you to look at verses 13 and 14 in that chapter, 2 Chronicles chapter 7. Now, Solomon and his people have already completed building the temple. It's a grand place. They've already, he's prayed to, uh, uh, to uh, 
set it apart. The Holy Spirit's filled it, the smoke of God's presence. Uh, they've, they've feasted. And God speaks to Solomon in a dream days after this happens. And God says to Solomon, and I want you to see verse 13 because it sets up verse 14. You need to see that what he describes comes out of hardship. God says to Solomon, If I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain, if I send the locusts to destroy the land, if I send pestilence upon my people, and then if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked way, then I will hear from heaven, I will forgive their sin, and will heal their land. And I want us, I want that to soak in with us because that, that is not just a promise for one specific group of people at one specific time. This is a promise that reveals the character of God. This is what God is like. When his people of any time and any place realize that there is a need to confront their brokenness and seek God and turn back to him, God says, I will be faithful. I will hear their prayer. I will forgive their sin. And I will heal their land. And if it was true thousands of years ago for the Hebrew people under Solomon's reign, it is true for the church of Jesus Christ today. And so my question is, what might happen? What, my friends, might happen if God's people will pray? We're glad that you chose to spend this time with us in God's Word. You can watch our worship services online at www.rmmcwp.net. May the Lord grant you the light of His truth as you journey through this day.